Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. Today we are going to listen to Kaylin Walsh, a postdoctoral researcher in my research group, lead a discussion on the impact of income and wealth inequality in today's world. Kaylin is from Canada, but he has traveled quite a bit around the world. He did his undergraduate in computer science and then his PhD in cognitive neuroscience from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I arranged for Kaylin to give this talk at the Molotov Seminar, which is the weekly series of talks that I organize at the University of Texas at Austin. Kaylin showed several facts and figures during his talk, which unfortunately you can't see here, but I think the audio is still self-explanatory enough that you can benefit a lot from listening to the discussion. If the talk gets you interested in some particular figure, let's say the Laffer curve, which he'll talk about, you can quickly look it up on the side. All right, so let's listen to what Kalen has to say about inequality, how we can measure it, and its impact on today's world. If you enjoy hanging out in the room of lives, consider donating ether at abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. is a postdoc in the group that I work in. Um, it's Dr. Geisler's group in the Center for Perceptual Systems, and we use tools of physics and math to understand various aspects of the brain, particularly the visual system. Mm, has nothing to do with this talk today. <laughs> but on multiple occasions, I have found that Kaylin reads and thinks a lot about politics and philosophy and economy. And um, we have had a lot of work-disrupting conversations. To say the least. <laughs> yes. So I just walk into work and I just think, I'm just going to say this one thing to Kalen and see what he thinks of it. Three hours later, <laughs> we're still there and I haven't got started working. Okay, so... Um, and I think he's going to be one of the best people to give the talk today because as we were discussing, there's, I mean, this is a very popular talk. Uh, pop, I, by that, I mean it's of interest to a lot of people, but oftentimes uh, it can all be fraught. It's just, oh, you're interested, but you haven't really read about stuff. So Kaylin actually reads uh, and digests. And so I think there's going to be a lot of useful new information and ways of thinking about these various issues that are going to come to light. Um, and he is also very good at keeping his cool, so an uh, ideal person to lead a talk like this. That should be all. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure that my laptop is not going to die. I think it's fine. Okay. Go ahead. Thanks, Neil. Uh, so I. The background to this this talk was um, I came to one recently and you know I said oh that was really really fun I'd like to, I'd give them all tough sometime and when I said that I was thinking like you know way in the future and then two days later Neil Neil calls me up and he says hey so uh, you know we don't have a speaker for next week would you give a Maltop? and then you know I was like mm, I don't know I thought I was I was talking about six months down the road and now you're talking about a week later 
so I gave him two options and I said, I sort of asked him, what do you think people would be interested in? I could, I could do a topic related to the stuff I work on, um, you know, computer science and neuroscience, or we can talk politics. And he was like immediately, oh, no, you should. It wasn't that immediate. Okay, it wasn't that immediate. Topics. Wasn't, okay. wasn't that immediate, but it was pretty quick. He said, you should, you should go for the, you should go for the politics. It'd be more fun. And I think he's right because it's, it's, um, yeah, I tried to put in some stuff here that, I think is topical in the sense that they're, they're current issues and, and they're important for, for us because they're, they're just big events that, that affect us personally. And then also they affect just the globe anyway. And, and you'll see what I mean. Um, but as a, as a, a kind of teaser, it's, we're going to be talking a lot about inequality and uh, income and wealth inequality that, that's out there in the world. It's it's gained a lot of attention recently from economists. Are there any economists here, by the way, the people who study economics? Potentially, okay. So you're gonna you can keep me honest here. Probably not. Probably okay. <laughs> well, uh, oh, the Bart Simpson. What's this guy all about? So this is just the replacement for the. Has anybody heard of the you know armchair philosopher? Yeah, armchair. This is like the replacement for the armchair philosopher. This is Bart Simpson in his room, looking at the world in his telescope. So that's. That's kind of what we're doing here. So the, the big events, what's, you know, what's going on? Like, if, if you read the news, you can't avoid these things. Uh, I don't know if, if, if you do pay attention a lot to the news, but these are just Brexit, Trump versus Bernie. That was a big thing. The Italian election happened, and now they've got, I don't know if you guys know what's going on in Italy, but they've got uh, a government that's composed of sort of a really right-wing anti-migration government, and then... A pretty left or undefined uh, political entity um, that the leader of which started off as a sort of political comedian, like a John Colbert or something, the Italian version of John Colbert. So now they got that's their that's their government now, and it's causing a lot of turmoil in Italy. Decision making is sort of uh, different decisions than usually what happen in Italy are, are being made. The oh. you said John Colbert. Steve Colbert. John sorry, sorry, John, John Steve Colbert. The Malaprop. There you go. Yeah. So you, you're keeping me honest. So there's the Brazilian election that that uh, just happened, and uh, they've shifted. They've shifted to the right, um, but it's it's not just a traditional sort of shift to the right. It's something very different than they've picked. A very different uh, selection of a leader than they've they've done in the past, and it seems out of the ordinary. And then generally, there's this surge of anti-establishment parties across the spectrum, right? all, all over the globe. If you look, there's just anti-establishment parties that are popping up in Europe and elsewhere, in Asia and elsewhere. So one question would be, are they linked? Is this a sort of, are these just random events that are occurring? Just, you know, the, the world's a complicated place. There's lots of complexity in the world. And uh, this is just, you know, we're taking a snapshot of the world and a lot of weird stuff is happening. Or is there like an underlying cause that's, that's generating these events? Is there something that's linking this up? Um, I'm not going to answer that because I think that's just way too big a question. But I'm going to present some ideas that might create some sort of unified way to think about it. Um, okay. So part of the trouble with thinking about things uh, of this nature is that, you know, when you have an argument, by the way, of those topics, who's had an argument or a dis critical discussion with your friends in the last year about one of those topics? Put your hand up. Okay, what about the last month? 
but the last week. No, 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 no. I'm yeah. talking about these ones. Oh. So these ones. Who's, you know, in, in the last year, pick one of these. Who's had a debate with somebody or an argument or discussion about Okay, it's the last, last month. Lots of people. Last week. Lots of people still, you know, probably in the last day you've talked about them. So, and, you know, I don't know if your experience was like mine, but they don't always go that well. You know, you don't really get to a resolution. You, you know, sort of like... Even if you kind of agree with the person you thought you agreed, all of a sudden you're in, you're in like no man's land and you don't know why you don't agree and it's, it's kind of odd. And I think one explanation for that is that, um, you know, usually these discussions are, are amounting to discussing risk or some sort of like con big consequence of some critical event. And there, I think that part of the reason it's so complicated to reason through these things is that there's, we call these like local risks and global risks, Okay. And these big ideas are all in the global risk kind of thing. And this is not like geographical global. It's just like there's a different kind of local global. But local risks are like if you drive faster, you're going to increase your risk of having an accident. Simple causality, right? It's just like it's like linear causality. Maybe it's not linear, but it's, it's approximated by linear. Smoke more cigarettes, you increase your risk of cancer. There's just really simple causal link there. City funds a bridge with debt. It's really if if they overextended and the pretty the this you know the debt the debt comes to uh, debt they come calling for the debt and there's a default it's localized usually within the city it's not going to spread to like Austin Austin debt collapse it's not going to spread to Argentina right poorly engineered building the building collapse then it's just kind of localized around the building so these are these are local 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 risks local local um, effects. The global stuff is really the interesting stuff that we usually debate about. And they are just a whole different can of worms with regards to risk and, and consequence and causality. So these are, these are kind of real things. U.S. raises the interest rates, so the, the Fed raises interest rates, and all of a sudden a factory in Senegal goes insolvent. And that's not just like a correlation. You could track that down and show causation there, right? But that kind of stuff happens. A typhoon hits Taiwan. And then all of a sudden, there's a crisis in the U.S. technology sector. That actually happened uh, like around 2011. There was a region where a typhoon hit in Taiwan, which produced a lot of semi, um, semiconductors. And that was just a critical part of the supply chain for the whole technology sector. So there was like a big disruption in iPhone 6 or 7. It was almost going to not make it to the market because of that. That's just how linked up that, that market is. And Donald Trump's Twitter probably heard a lot about that, but... That recently uh, did cause a financial crisis in Turkey, which then led to a financial crisis, which is ongoing in Argentina. Okay, so those are just wait, wait, tell us more. Yeah, I will. So I've got a slide on that. So this is how that worked, right? So this is part of this global risk chain. So this was the tweet. I have just authorized the doubling of tariffs on steel and aluminum with respect to Turkey as their currency. The Turkish lira slides rapidly down there, downward against our very strong dollar. And that's just true. So that's like, you know, Donald Trump was looking at this, right? This event was right around here, this tweet. But he was looking at this and he's like, you know, basically pointing out that, that that's his fact. That the dollar is going up and the lira is going down. But he's now saying aluminum will be 20% steel, 50%. Our relations with Turkey are not good at this time. Immediately, there's a, a, a downward spike in the, in the value of the lira. And that's not, that's not really complicated to understand why that would be. I mean, you know, does everybody kind of intuitively get that? Like, this is a threat on the Turkish economy. 
investors are saying, you know, who have their money in Turkey are like, hmm, this is just not good. They're going to be going to toe to toe with the superpower. We better pull our money out, right? And by pulling their money out, these investors have their money stashed away and actually in the currency. So there's a currency exchange, the forex. So if as investors are saying, you know, Turkey's looking not looking good, they pull their money out of that, out of they just stop investing in the in the lira, and then the currency value drops. That's just how that works. So that's that's just that's simple. That's what happens. But then weirdly, you know, just there's this kind of like blip, and then it comes back up because investors are rational. They're like, oh, you know, the investors are rational. He is probably not, and they're like, okay, we we probably don't have to worry that much. So let's just go back to our, our baseline where the market was before. But all of a sudden there's this big dip in the Argentina, Argentinian peso. And that is just, that's just, it's just weird, but it's, it's real. So if you looked into the details, what happened was there's all these big financial funds that are invested in both markets. So it's, these are part of uh, emerging market funds, right? And what happened was because of this, those big funds started to think that the managers of those started to think emerging markets are, are, are not safe. They're not safe places to put our money in. And so they started to pull their money out of those. And then because these two things are linked by those funds, that created a crisis in the Argentinian peso. The Argentine, as you can see, the Argentinian economy was not doing very well over this period of time. But that shock just sent this sent this drop, which is ongoing in Argentina. Now they've, they, they were having this uh, negotiation with the IMF to get some money, and then all those negotiations were starting to get re, uh, renegotiated because of this blip. So it's just this huge mess because of, because of a tweet, right? That might not even be that meaningful, but I think it just shows us how global these risks are, right? That everything's interconnected in, in kind of bizarre and strange ways that can't really be predicted in advance. Um, and you know, this is kind of, this is like the real dark web is like global finance. This is probably heard a lot about this if you've read about the financial crisis, but this is just showing the cross border, uh, financial flows. So these big funds, like big money fl flowing across or cross borders. Um, I called that the real dark web because you know, it's just 12 at this, this was just before the financial crisis. So this is $12 trillion that's going across borders. Right? So. If you think the global GDP is about 60 trillion, that's a huge amount of money, right? That's just kind of flowing around. There's just a lot of hidden risk within that huge amount of money. So, uh, you know, is there's when you're looking at this this money, how much of it is linked? How much of it links the Middle East with South South America? Well, nobody really knows because it's so densely interconnected. If there's a crisis in in, in South America, that could easily propagate to the Middle East because their supply chains are linked or, so, or something. So the point is that, you know, a lot of people have connected this, this problem here with the financial crisis. So this is, this is sort of the, the conduit by which the financial crisis uh, propagated. There was a, a sort of local in the U.S. housing market that was, it was a very big problem that that bubble burst. But because of this, it was able to like infect all markets all over the world, and uh, and that happened. So what you can see here was that after the financial crisis, those cross-border um, investments dipped, but it's you know it's back up, and it's not as high as it was, but it's sort of like just you know there's something very anomalous going on here, but it's it's just following that trajectory. So it's still high, and it's still. You know, if you believe that these these risks 
because of this or there, they're still they're still there, right? There's enough. Five point nine trillion is enough to make it hurt. Is something very hard to measure these? The numbers? Yeah. I don't think it's hard to measure. I think I think. Who's going to give you this data? Oh, I think it's it's sort of data that is required to be registered. Uh, so, uh, it'll there'll be some missing. I mean. It won't be accurate to the million dollar level or even maybe even the ten million dollar level. There'll sure. be some missing stuff there. But these are they'll be aggregated over regulated firms like regulated funds. So big yeah, financial yeah. funds that do deals in like the ten billion dollar range, they just have to expose everything but there that they're are doing. People's private funds being so, so that's yeah. not gonna be accounted here, right? That's true. So hedge funds, there are some different kinds of uh, funds and some of them are more opaque than others. So it's true there could be some something missing here, but I don't really know enough about finance. If anybody knows about finance, they could possibly answer that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it would probably increase the, these. It would it would yeah yeah it would increase and also um, I think that you know to some extent the global financial system is regulated to some extent and one of those is with information so you have to sort of register a lot of things so you can get estimates it'll be from like the, I guess McKin McKinsey did this they're a big consultancy. Um, and they might have got the data from the World Bank, or they might have got it from the IMF or the OECD or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So is that like twelve point seven per year or per month or what? Mm. So you can't directly compare stocks and flows. Sure. So like you say, USG or world GDP is like sixteen trillion. That's like a. I think generally that would be considered a stock, and this is a flow. So you have like the same money just going back and forth many, many times. Yeah. If you count it every time, every transaction. Absolutely. Then you're gonna add up, even if you're really just like. A half a trillion dollars, I mean, it's obviously a lot more than half a trillion dollars in international monetary transactions, but like if you just had a you know, half a trillion dollars moving back and forth many times, it would add up. And yeah, so that's a good point. Just saying that, like, oh, it's compared to, to 60 trillion doesn't necessarily mean much unless you know the, the philosophy. The velocity of the money, yeah, I, I agree. That's a good point. I mean, Maybe that was wrong to put that on the same on the same scale as the as the GDP because the whole point of GDP is supposed to be counted once. That's the you, you sort of calculate GDP factoring out all all the other. Um, but it still makes at least you can compare the order of magnitude. Yeah, it's it's yeah the order of magnitude is there, and then also I think I mean, really yeah, the, the velocity can can vary by little orders of magnitude depending on the economic conditions. Yep. So this big spike, you know, might not have meant that's the same thing. It, you know, this big spike could have come because there was feedback loops or something that was going on at this time that made it even more risky. Like, um, you know, I guess I'm, I'm veering out of, out of my again, knowledge it, on the topic. It, it could be the case that it's really only like a, a few percent of world GDP that is involved in all these many, many transactions. Mm -hmm. The whole system, if, if, all, if, if all this like international stuff like collapsed, then it would only be only a few percent of world GDP still quite a lot. But like that's what yep. would be at risk. Or it could actually be the case that, like, you know, 10% of world GDP is actually at risk of all yep. this. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. So that's not, that, that isn't like, you know, a fifth of world GDP is, is at risk of, you know, that's not what happened there. But a few percent of GDP moving around a lot. Yeah, it could be. I think the, you know, I guess the, the good part about this is just showing you that this was sort of like the peak of the mess. And, and it dipped and dropped, but it's still high, right? So this is, if, if this is, there's many risk factors. There's many, many um, factors that go into making the financial system at risk of collapse. If this is one of them, it's, it's still pretty high. That's kind of, and, it, and it, it does, this does act like a conduit because it links up, you know, um, economies that are geographically distinctive.
Okay, so I want to get into talking about um, economic inequality and, uh, you know, as, as a potential, um, you know, kind of unifying principle that could be one of these, uh, one of these risks that are, are, is sort of global and does have the potential to be, uh, you know, if, at least if we can't predict what's going to happen, it's, we can identify that it's a problem. And that it, it's sort of uh, it's consequential and widespread. So that's that's what I think. Um, why I think economic inequalities we're talking about or we're thinking about because it's you know it's prevalent as we'll see. I'm going to show some statistics. But just to point out that not everybody sees you know inequality as a universally bad thing. Okay, so um, and it probably isn't a universally bad thing. Maybe it is, but maybe maybe it isn't, and I I don't really know. But the potential upsides that that often get cited. Are that uh, if you have if you have a situation of inequality within an economy, you can incentivize innovation. So if 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 there's the potential to earn more and more and 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 get more, you will work harder to do that. And if you don't have inequality, if there's no potential for having inequality, then people won't work harder because they because that's what motivates people is to is to is to gain more. Um, and then also, you know, people would argue that if you if you don't have, uh, you know, inequality is just a consequence of people, some people working harder than others. And you should reward those people who work harder with more pay. And then that's going to lead to inequality. And, you know, there's, there seems like there's some logic to that. And also other, other people, maybe people of a more libertarian bent would say, well, with, um, you know, inequality is a product of a system that doesn't require state inter too much state intervention. You just let things happen. And, uh, and the system will sell into an equilibrium that is slightly unequal or very unequal, but you, maybe that's not great, but at least you don't need a strong state and you avoid all the problems that are associated with having a big, you know, state apparatus to force the, to, uh, to force equality, which, you know, seems to be true that you need governments to, to, uh, intervene to, to, to create, uh, equality. Potential downsides, uh, though, on the other hand, are, that if you have high degrees of inequality, then there's only a few people to innovate because most people don't have the resources that are required to do that innovation. They don't get the education because they can't afford it, all those things. Um, and, you know, if you have high levels of inequality, people can, you know, sort of work hard. It's like a hamster. The hamster is working damn hard, but he's not going anywhere, right? So if you have a highly unequal system, then this might happen. And, um, you know, you could kind of see intuitively that it, that it, that it could. Um, and then this one is sort of a, a big risk, and this has happened multiple times. Arguably, this was, you know, kind of like World War II. This was what happened, maybe. I mean, some people have suggested that. The, Fr the, the French Revolution, literally, that actually happened. Uh, the queen told the subjects to eat cake, and they said, no, we're going to cut your husband's head off. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually happened. And then, you know, you've got the Russian Revolution. So, so those are, that's sort of like the worst downside is that if you just don't pay attention to it at all, it gets so bad and then people just revolt and they throw, uh, they throw the yoke off. You've got a question. Yeah. The, the eating cake bit, could you clarify? I just don't know the context from the French. So the, so the, 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 sort of the French revolution was, uh, the people were very, it was a, it was a bad situation, a lot of poverty and there was a point in that build up towards the, the head cutting situation where right. it's, it's apocryphal perhaps, but 
they this, there was a group of the mob who went to the queen and they said, uh, you know, they just they, they complained and she said, let them eat cake. Like she had, she was so oblivious. Well, we said, we the people don't have bread. The people don't have bread, and then she she said, "Let them eat cake, right?" And so as the common person, and you know, she might have even thought that that was a reasonable circumstance. That was a reasonable idea that they could just get busy making lots of cake and keep them happy, right? No, I don't think it's. Yeah. Or maybe she just didn't just didn't care. <laughs> I, I have a slight aside about that. Okay. The real, I think the cake thing that keeps getting said is actually bad translation. Mm-hmm. Now what happened is. Um, the, so there is massive inflation, and to be able to battle with this, uh, French economists, uh, the monarchy, insisted on fixing the price of bread. But then uh, uh, selling that bread wasn't profitable anymore. So all the bakers switched to making the like fixing the type of bread that all the poor people bought. They fixed the price on that. Uh, that bread was no. Everyone stopped making it because it wasn't profitable. They started making a more expensive type of bread. For which the price wasn't fixed. So when they came to the king, uh, to the queen, uh, she was referring to, why don't they just eat the more expensive type of bread? Not and that was the cake. Uh, That's yeah. the actually brioche. Brioche. Oh, it's a brioche. Oh, you see at the. So it should. Be, it should. Have, we'll change that to let them eat brioche. We, you know. That's really. Doesn't quite have the you know the je ne sais quoi of it. You know, let them eat cake, but. You know, that's, that's sort of the potential downside um, there. Okay, so another thing, has anybody heard of the Laffer curve? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's worth, it's, it's like a, a, a mathematical structure worth thinking a little bit about and bringing up in arguments. It's notorious because it was sort of, um, it's notorious uh, for a lot of reasons, but a lot of it, a lot of the reasons notorious is that it, it this idea was, was used in the 1980s by the Reagan administration to justify the lowering the tax rate, and uh, basically the the curve um, expresses the relationship between tax rate and the revenue you get get back from it that you, that you get back from taxing at that rate. And the intuitive idea of tax rate is like, well, if you tax more, you're going to get more, right? But so right, if you tax, if you if the more you tax at the higher rate, you're going to just get more money back, right? That that would be like the intuitive notion, but it's probably not true, right? Because if you tax people so much, they just stop working because they're like, there's diminishing returns. If you're just, if you're working hard, and you're just getting taxed so much, then you stop working. And then you make well, less they work, but in ways that they hide their income. Sure. They have all sorts of um, yeah, I think you could, you could, you could be doing um, tax avoidance can, can yeah. pop up. So there's, yeah, there's only going to work for cash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people just start focusing really heavily on how to avoid getting taxed, right? So it has this, this Laffer curve. It's a theoretical idea, right? That at some parts of this curve, you can be up at the tax rate, but that counterintuitively, you can, you can lower your tax rate and make more money for the government. So that's what they sort of argued in the 1980s, the Reagan administration. That's what they did. And, um, you know, I'm not an economist, so I can't tell you exactly what the, the effects were of that, but that's what they argued. People on the left said, you know, people left-wing economists would say it didn't work at all. It was a total failure. And then people on the right uh, would say, oh, it's a genius idea. The and left-wing it's... economists would say that lowering the tax rate did not work. No, that that lowering oh, yeah, lowering the tax rate, uh, you know, had been, had negative consequences by not being able to fund social programs. Yeah. Okay. And because you didn't make, you know, it, it, 
Okay. If you lower your tax rate and you make more money, ultimately you want to make more money. So if you lowered it and you made more money, that's fine, right? So th there's just a debate here. So my, my guess is that you can really go out there, if you met economists, you could just ask them, what do you think about the Laffer curve? And if they tell you that they like it, then they're probably a conservative. And if they tell you that they hate it, then they're probably, you know, a, a lefty. And if they say, nah, you know, it's an interesting idea, they might be a libertarian. Uh, sorry, but the like notion that most of the like complex like, things economists argue about are not really the kinds of things that you know people argue about politically, and for the most part, the like big like like sort of economic ideas that people argue about politically don't really have a there's just sort of no it's pretty orthogonal to what economists think. Like there's some like ideas that are associated with the left that economists think are good, and some that Commerce with the right and some neither. Uh, but the like big political split has sort of been resolved since like the 70s or so. Uh, the whole like saltwater, freshwater thing is, is like this, you know, the big thing sort of left, it was a leftover idea in popular imagination from the 70s, but uh, not really how economists think. Uh, so you're saying the, the economists don't think in terms of. There's not really of... A, a split from like conservative economists versus liberal economists on the, the, the Laffer curve. Like, what exactly is, is generally agreed upon a location of that? Sure, team. yeah. Um, What's the consensus? What do they? I believe at this agree? point, very few countries are on the right side of the Laffer curve. Uh, when it became popular in the 80s, I believe more, more countries were on the right side, particularly in like Northern Europe. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. So, 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 you know, I just, this is what, this is what actually happens, right? So, if it, like, just, just to be clear, for the, for the Laffer curve to be, you know, the, 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 the correct model, the, these squares should all kind of line up on here, like Norway, look at Norway, they're just, <laughs> I mean, they know how to, they know how to be fit by the Laffer curve, that's, I, that's uh, just perfect. What, what are the axes? What kind of scientist are you dealing with? Yeah, but I mean, axis? I already defined the, I already defined the axis, you can't remember from the last slide, that's tisk tisk. <laughs> this would be tax rate, and this would be revenues as a proportion of GDP. So, so why is, is the Laffer curve? Oh, okay. So that was a yeah. So, so I think that was a simplified. Depiction. Yeah, it was a simplified depiction, and you know, it's. I mean, this is this is like a, this is a model. This the point is that, that that there's some economic modeling that goes into to getting out the Laffer curve, right? This is what it. This is what if that under that hypothesis, that's what it would look like. Mm. And if that hypothesis is true and it reflects reality in the way that the world works. This, these, these boxes should really nicely line up there, but they don't, right? I mean, there's some structure that looks Laffer-like. You know, it's kind of, as you go up, you see it kind of increase a little bit. Maybe you could argue there's something going on there, but it, start, it seems like it's equally as well predicted by a sort of linear model, right? I mean, and the linear model doesn't do a good job either. So really where you're kind of left is like, ah, well, it's somewhere between an extremely bizarre... Laffer curve model and a linear model, which means you don't know anything well, about what's going on. In either case, we can agree that the Norway is doing something right. I believe the, the peak is, is not at Norway, it's, it's much further to the right. Uh, at this point, m most countries are sort of on the left, and then that's sort of what you would get is that you know you, you have this you know, sloping upwards if the actual peak of the Laffer curve occurs close to like 50 or 70 or 80 percent. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I believe oh, a lot of countries, like Norway as well as some of the other countries there, had at one point much higher uh, marginal tax rates and have actually reduced them since like the 80s or early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So when you say that the actual peak of the Laffer curve is to the right and at 50%, yeah, the, the, the what is that bottom axis peaks about 50%. 
I mean, there's one, there's one way of saying, saying that fit. He's saying the fit is not correct. He's saying that the is that a fit, fit more right. or is that what uh, the the theory predicts for the lab? Looks like a I I I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the the OECD you know generated this exact. I mean, I guess the what I would guess is that they took the theoretical model and then because the OECD doesn't really have a ideology. It's sort of just a it's an yeah, economic. Yeah, they have an American Enterprise Institute, which interpreted it and came up with this. So yeah, they do have an ideology. They do, they do. That's true, but um, it looks like this. So yeah, I guess he's part of both institutes. I mean, the point is not really the point. The, the reason I bring up the Laffer curve is for a different reason, which is just to say that that these kind of these kind of issues they don't generally you know they're not resolved by this kind of thinking this linear thinking which is what i you know i think a lot of people tend to do is think that it's you're either on a you're on an axis where less is worse or less is better or more is good as more is better and i don't think just to talk about inequality i don't think it's like that it's not just like you can't we can't just say we should have much less we should have zero inequality because that might have negative consequences itself and the Laffer curve, I think, is useful as a thought experiment to just show us that the, these kind of complex relationships do occur. Most things are kind of some, they're, they're probably going to have some U-shaped utility function. And I think inequality is like that. But um, <laughs> so, this, so now we're kind of getting into, into actual inequality statistics. Um, and this is, I mean, this is, this is just about the top... 1% of incomers since 191900 uh, okay so this u-shaped function here it might be hard to see this but this is the this is the US this is the UK this is Canada Ireland and Australia so kind of developed developed uh, economies and from since the 1900s there was you know a drop in the share right so this is like you take the top the richest 1% and you say what proportion of the total income do they capture, do they have, right? And so now in the US, they have, that group has 20% of all the income. And so since the 1900s, it was falling, but something happened in the 1980s where that's sort of just, there's just big, big upswing. So that's on the, this rising edge. And yeah, so that's, that's with regards to the top 1%. It's only one part of the distribution, but it's, you know, it's, it's an influential one and it's, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's gotten quite large. So this is, it's interesting because you, you know, we could dig deeper and we could talk about, well, what happened in the 1980s? You could get into like, um, questions of policy and, and governments and, uh, and, and that's interesting, but I think this makes the point, this right here makes the point, uh, as well as I I'd like to, which is that it is something that's under the control of governments to change. Okay. This kind of proves that because this is the same time period, but it's a very different function. And if you look at these countries, France, Japan, Spain, Netherlands, and Denmark, they just have a very different trajectory for how much the 1% is getting. So that kind of shows that there's something that is under the control of policy with regards to any, it, well, with regards to how certain percentiles of the distribution get, get their money. Because these, these, these governments kind of have done different things with their policy. Than, than those governments. Okay, so that was just, what I showed you was just, um, you know, one small point in that distribution. 
This is a, a different way of breaking it down. Okay, so this is now looking at uh, deciles. So it's the, the second would be the, um, the sort of lowest 20% of uh, this, is in, this is income. Well, it's the second. So, um, and, then, and then this would be like the, this would be, they have more income than 90% of the population. Right. Wait, wait, let's look. So x-axis is time. Okay, so y-axis is what does that so mean? So this is this means indexed to 1974, meaning that everything is normalized to that for, for that group. They're uh, it's all normalized to be for that decile. Uh, their well, what income. Is, what is being normalized? What's the raw the income? So it's uh, growth real disposable household income. So it's sort of this is an aggregate measure for households. So it's, if you break if you break the, the measure down to a household, it's saying what is the income of that household? And you would take, at 1974, what's the average uh, household income for the second decile? And then you would uh, just, you know, at, so everything gets referenced to 1974. And then you ask, how does that grow for those different deciles? At every stage, you would you divide by that, that amount in 1974 and just see how it's growing. Right. What is the unit on the vertical axis? Is it something it's, it would be something? percent, right? I think it's going to be a percentage. So it'll be... Oh, growth. This is growth. It's growth, right? This is so a growth rate. So, right. So if you had 200, it'd be, it'd be saying that your the income of that decile mm -hmm. since uh, since 1974 has doubled if it was 200. Okay. So in every point, you look at the decile of that time, or are you following the initial... No, you would you would you remeasure. You'd say okay. you know what is the income of the yeah, second decile. What's the now? income of the second decile, and then you divide by the the and value of nineteen seventy four. What's that? Then the lines should never cross. Um, no, they can, it can go up, and then it can go. I guess right. go down. So there's a one line representing the first decile. Yeah, yeah. These are growth rates. These yeah, are growth. These so are not the incomes themselves. Yeah. These so are the incomes yeah. maybe also oh, different right. color, but the growth rates can cross each other. So for these guys, it, it went up, and then it then for that decile they 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 drop. So what are we to make of this plot? Uh, the fact that it's spreading. Yeah, yeah. The fact that it's spreading, so that at all uh, at at all income levels, it's it's fanning out, right? So uh, another way to look, another way to think about that would be that as time's going on. The distance between your sort of neighbor in in uh, in income space is 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 gradually increasing. So, so the growth rates are different. They're now. yeah yeah. I mean, so they started out. They're sort of they're just they're fanning out. So there's there's just bigger spread. I think it's kind of interesting to point out that the the bottom decile does get a bump though, right? Like they're sitting and their their relative growth like above the second, third, and fourth. Yeah. Uh, where, where right here? Uh, like once it gets to the end. yeah, just towards the end, it seems to be like a, a relative. Seems true true. Hey, then, is this this is in the first chart? The second chart definitely not. But the first chart is the vertical axis logarithmic. Because to no. be fair, these things you know have to it's have not on a logarithmic chart. Do you see what why I'm saying that? Um, to see because you're comparing growth rates. Mm -hmm. And so, if you compare growth rates, uh, which are kind of multiplicative, you have to have a logarithmic chart in order to. to s I mean, because everything is kind of multiplicative. It's not the growth rate, it's the total growth. It's so at the end, it's saying that now the income of the first percentile in terms of 1974 thing is 150 
percent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Think it's not a rape. So these are not uh, amount of growth as a percentage. No, it's a, it's a, it's oh, a amount of growth reference to 1974. Yeah. So it's all anchored to a to a, it's a single growth rate that year. But if everyone was growing at the same rate, then all the land will be. They'd all be lined up. Yeah, exactly. That's, so they'd all be cool. they'd all be growing in proportion for constant proportionality, but they're they're not. They're spreading out, and this is just for the. The United Kingdom, they had, I guess, more growth to do, but it's a similar, similar pattern. Uh, so uh, there's another. So well, so. Can you go back? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, if the whole system, just imagine a whole system, that's just growing. Okay, imagine a whole system that's growing. Uh, so everyone is growing. But their growth rates, the separations between their growth rates are also growing at the same scale. It's just natural because the whole system is growing. So everyone's kind of growing. The separation is, you see how that looks like a scaling over time? The whole thing is just being scaled. Mm -hmm. It's like you put dots on a balloon and you blow that balloon up. Everyone grows, but they also get separated from each other. So here's a question regarding like the natural law of growth. Is it possible for everyone to grow but not separate from each other? Well, this is well, what the chart is saying is that in the 90th percentile made, say, in real terms, 40% more in 2013 than did in 1974. And the whatever, first decimal, sorry, say bank, I should be clear. The ninth, 90th percentile made more in 40% more than the 90th percentile did in 1974. Those might be different people. Yeah. Uh, and the, let's say, 20th percentile in 2013 made whatever, 5 or 10% more in real terms than the 20th percentile did in the 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. I'm just saying, is it is it is it okay to expect that for a system that's just growing everywhere, everything is being scaled? No. That if it was can oh sorry, pull maybe down the spread. The spread should be zero. It should be perfectly distributed. Yeah. If everybody's just growing at the same rate, it yeah, would. Yeah. But it, what I'm talking about is some sort of a. Question about growth. He's literally like, asking whether it's possible. Is it, is it possible? Is it not the same line? Is it not a very artificial thing to try and distort the a growing system? No, but it's, so this is right. So imagine everyone, uh, like uh, everyone was getting paid a dollar a day in nineteen seventy four. Yeah. Well, or sorry to say, everyone's getting paid some amount in nineteen seventy four. Yeah. And the, let's say there's a, and then like everyone gets a raise by like thirty percent, right? Yeah. The, the difference in my extra money, you, you're right, the difference in extra money between neighboring people would increase. Yeah. But the percent of growth would be the same, right? Yeah. So, so if, yeah. The, then the, in that completely unbelievable scenario, the line would be just straight for uh, like the same line. No, I understand. Yeah. My question was a more like philosophical one. Like, is it, is, is it natural for a growing system? Also have oh. A growing spread oh, I see. Is that just a, yeah? I, yeah. That, I, I, that I see. I see. I see. I see that question now. Yeah. Um, but that wouldn't that contradict the earlier curve where we saw? Um, I think it was like the top one percent of earners, their relative proportion of total GDP decreased for a while. Because I'm I'm sure like GDP didn't um, yeah diminish. So the so the the thing is that in all of these things, there's a mix of of like natural law of economics or, you know, there probably is something like that mixed with policy because there's always policy and there's always choices that some, you know, government makes with regards to an economic policy at a national level that's going to impact this. So that's a huge, 
you know, from what I understand in economics, that's a huge thing to try to parcel those out and actually understand the phenomena. If you're asking a question about a more like in, in natural systems that are that are under, um, you know, say natural system where there's resource scarcity and there's competition amongst the the organisms or the or the units, um, is it natural to expect this just general expansion of some of them, you know, lots of a few winners and lots of losers? I think it's 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 plausible that it's that's what nature's like. You certainly see it in spe in animal species. You know, the walrus comes to mind. It's like you know, one walrus, hundreds of walrus wives, stuff like that. Um, you see, you see those in in epidemiology. You see yeah. things like that. So it, you know, I'll give you I'll give you an example that I. Oh, you got something in mind? So okay. if you take satellite photos of the basins of rivers, like the drainage, uh, the places where rivers start. So these are in the mountains and the rain falls on different parts of the mountains and they become streams and they join each other and become bigger rivers. And you take a picture of this whole basin of a river and then you do some analysis and try and find out the distribution of thicknesses of the different strands. So there are like tangible strands of like little streams that are just trickling down the mountain and then they're joining, becoming bigger, etc. Uh, until they're feeding into bigger rivers. And as you do this kind of analysis, you find always a power law mm. of the distribution. So, and the power law arises from the fact that as you get bigger, your erosion capacity is going to get bigger and you're going to flow down uh, faster and you're going to accumulate more. Mm -hmm. And this same thing happens in the in social networks. The more people you know, the more you're prone to knowing more people. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and, and any system that's kind of has a positive feedback like that will have power laws. Mm -hmm. So you can go in and try and say, just take the analogy of the river and say, I want to more equally distribute the volume of water. Left to nature, this is what's happening, too much inequality. So, and then you could try and, and there's a role for policy to try and distort that. In, I'm, I shouldn't use the word distort, but bend it out of the natural way. So when I looked at that and looked like a scaling, there might be some sort of natural law there that if you just let things be, in order for there to be growth, the growth, the spread of growth will also grow at the same kind of rate. Yeah, that's and a really interesting idea. Well, but then you're, then you're basing your assumptions on the fact that the, that the market is truly, truly uh, it's it's not based on an incentive for a particular group or a, or a particular factor in the market. If if you're thinking of the the naturally evolved market, you're taking into account an idealized version where any policy that's being created at this moment will be sort of have negligible negative effects to all the all the companies or all the competitors in the market, which may not always hold true. And so it, it, there might be some variances in the in the growth rate or in in the in your annual or like a decade thing, but I will agree to the fact that over a long period of time yeah. there will sort of dissociation for for different groups in economies because naturally the one who who's doing the best will always keep on doing the best or will find ways to be the best versus the one who cannot find something to do will always be stuck there because yeah. naturally for some reason yeah. well not happen. just that not, not just that they're doing well they see my growth last year was 10 percent they're not satisfied with that this year they want to be at 12 percent and the more the more you have grown the more power you have to increase your growth 
So uh, I think that's like an accumulation. I think that that is. And you'll see this reflected in all derivatives. I think it's exponential. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So we're we're talking about two derivatives here. It's yeah, a, yeah it's a, it's it's a really interesting question. Uh, I mean, it's it's maybe it's a little bit beyond to answer. Try to answer that's a bit beyond. I don't think I have the data here to to speak to it. It's it's yeah. but it's a it's a really fascinating question. But I mean, the, okay, so the thing that I'm, the power laws have a lot of derivatives, and all their derivatives kind of act the same. Mm -hmm. Scale the scale invariance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the. Uh, you know, another another implication is that whether it's it could be natural or it could be non-natural, right? It could be non-natural in the sense that it's the policy that's actually facilitating it. Other, you know, there would be equality otherwise, but policy helps to to make it unequal. Um, or it could be that it's it's actually natural, uh, and and policy is doing the 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 other thing. But a question you you just want to ask, since since we're rational people, we can say. Does it, is it actually harmful? And either, if, if we answer the question that it's harmful or it's to be avoided or it's, we should worry about it, either way, you figure out policies that would that would um, either decrease it or control it to some extent. I think, but that's really, really interesting. So in the, in the talk for the United Kingdom, is the, is the income, or I'm assuming the income is in the, in the wrong currency, which would be pounds. Mm -hmm. So. Real. The real should take care of that. Oh. The real is always comparing it to itself. To itself. Oh. Yeah, I mean, are you wondering why it's so big? Well, yeah, my question was going to be, it seems like the 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 median for the for the the growth for the, the United Kingdom seems to be much higher than the, the one for the US, but they have they have a different conversion. It, it's not one to one. So if you I was wondering if you scale one to the other. Do you, do you see that is the U.S. getting richer than the U.K. in terms of the median income, or are they still the, the U.S. is much richer than the United Kingdom, even after this? Even yeah, after I mean, yeah. and this is this is household income, so it would be you know like all sorts of reasons that Yeah, I mean the the U.S. has many more households, so overall the economy is much much larger in the U.S. But this is you know this is per household, so it's it's like. The U.S. doesn't have the highest household income in the world. I, you know, there's a there's a number of countries. I think it's up there. There's not that many, but I think Canada's above them, above the U.S. And I think I know the U.K. is not. One of them. The U.K. is not one of them. But th this is also over you know a period of time, and you know I I think it depends how those economies were doing relatively at that point. So if the U.K. had more, the U.K. was doing poorly in 1974 and had a long distance to go and then they they had room to do a doubling whereas the the u.s may not have had room to to, to double their their household income over that time period i would guess that's what explained that but i'm not I, i'm not completely sure on that yeah, i remember when the um one of my my first macro class uh actually sort of constructed this model that showed that you expect kind of like states Whatever regions with lower GDP will have a higher potential growth rate. Uh, and then we looked at some data showing that like not all poor countries have a higher growth rate, but like sort of like basically all of the countries with a higher growth rate are poor to begin with. Yeah, there's a, there's there's going to be a there's going to be a ceiling. Like once you 
Yeah, yeah. There'll be some kind of ceiling once you get up high enough. It just once you're so wealthy, it just becomes harder to um, increase. But yeah. Okay. Any other comments? So another, I mean, those two measures of inequality, we talked about the 1% and then we broke it up into the deciles. Those are sort of two different ways of thinking about inequality. Another, another method that's, that's used, which is, you know, potentially more powerful in some ways to do, to do comparisons is something called the Gini coefficient. And it's worthwhile knowing what this is. You might, if, if you get interested in this topic and doing more reading, the Gini coefficient will come up all the time. Um, but it's a pretty simple and elegant idea. And uh, what you do to create your, your Gini coefficient, by the way, a coefficient just means a single, num a single number that's going to summarize uh, inequality. In this case, it can be a number between 0 and 1, or if you scale 0 and 100. But now it's a single number that tells you it's an inequality index, right? And here's how you do that. You, uh, you rank your, uh, your population on the x-axis. So this cumulative share of the population. So this would be the, 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 ten, the bottom 10% of your population. Okay, and then you ask uh, for your bottom ten percent. means like poorest, 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 ten percent of your population. And you say, what proportion of the total income available in that economy or region or whatever scale you're looking at, what proportion of the income do they have? And if there's perfect equality, what you what you have to have is the straight line. So that would be that if you go ten percent of your poorest, they have ten percent of your income. 20% would have 20% of your income. So that would be this theoretical line of equality, which is just never going to happen, but at least you can construct it. It's an idea. I just realized there's a... Okay. But this is only in the edge case where everyone earns the same amount. How do you even sort them? Oh, right. It's, it's <laughs> undefined, right? It's an undefined... Yeah. It's an undefined, but you could but, then uh, randomly select. Uh, and if you, can you still... have a system in which everyone earns approximately the same, or very close to the same, and you sort them, you're still going to get something that's roughly... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's just I mean, you know, you're a physicist, so you, you, those kind of those kind of things happen. But in the real yeah. world, yeah. those kind of things never happen. There's always an ordering. Sorry. Yeah. I apologize. No, no, all, <laughs> no. It's good. It's good. You, you, you got to keep us um, keep us honest. Keep us honest. Break, uh, Kurt Vonnegut novel, in which he talks about a world where everybody is forced to be equals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that Vonnegut book, that's that's Vonnegut's book. It's the it's like the smart people have to have like you know devices that like back up and be able to concentrate. Right, right, right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, like... What was that one? <laughs> Which one was it? So there, there, if you have blood average intelligence, the government plants this little thing in your brain that if you actually start to like think about something, it goes off and like distracts you unless you can concentrate. Beautiful. Okay. What I would do is like, <laughs> is like Uber or Airbnb. It, it means that extra CPU power to people who don't have it. And it can be uh, reimbursed in cryptocurrency. There's a blockchain solution for that. That's There's right. a blockchain solution for that. Come in. Like, like, no if you're willing to share your intellect, you can have money. <laughs> yeah, we can have a much greater system for that. Yeah. So this is this is your your line of perfect quality, and then you you actually go out and you you measure what it what does the distribution actually look like, right? And it's always going to be bowed something like this. It doesn't have to be this shape; it could be anything, right? But it it has to be increasing like that and and end at end at hundred. So you can measure the area in that. So highly the most unequal situation would be that all these people have nothing, and there's just one guy with everything, right? And so 
that would be that would be there and you measure the area under there it'll be well this is one let's say two people right there's going to be some area that means that there's so just even if it's just one person it's going to work out to be like yeah that'll be that's it'll just right you could do it with with one person um and but you're going to have very small small area right um or very, very, very large, large area, because this is going to be pulled all the way over here, and you're going to have a large area in A. So that would be a highly unequal society. On the other hand, if, you know, if it was kind of tightly hugging the line, you know, as you go up in the, in the percentile, you, you, know, you stick close to that line, you're going to have a very small area. And when you do, when you do this, when you, take the, um, when you divide A by A plus B, you get a single number that just sort of reflects the amount of area in A. And that's your index. So that'll be your, your Gini coefficient that you can you can compare. It's it's not perfect. It's not like it's not a magic bullet to tell you whether a society or whether an economy is good or bad. It's just it it is what it is. It's just a it's an approximation that tells you something about because you can just see it intuitively. It, it it catches some aspects of this notion of inequality, and you can use it to compare. So here's you know I took the Gini. Are we running out of time? By the way, is that no, no, there is no time. There, there is no time. Wow, mine is long. Physics is really hard. <laughs> so well, I, you I know. just want to point out. I pointed this out before. If you go into some of these rooms in the physics department, they design like a casino. No windows, no clocks. The clocks. Okay, so this. The clocks run backwards. Now, but because I've been booking this room for many years, well, several years, the clock keeps breaking down. And then taken off the wall, and my suspicion is the reason that they have no windows and uh, no clocks in casinos is people forget how long they've been yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah, and I think the psychologist is going to I don't <laughs> want you to know how long, how much of your life you're spending in RM. So, sage words. Yes. Yeah. You have a watch. <laughs> <laughs> so this is so. These are all the, if you take all the Gini coefficients for, um, so here what I did is I took the bottom, however many are here, the bottom, uh, the most unequal at, uh, across, the, across the world you find however many of these there are, and you just plot them with their Gini coefficients. So that kind of gives you an idea, like, you know, this is, this is these are the range it's not coming up very higher means uh, more unequal. more unequal. Yeah, is that a percentage must be right. Mm. Yeah, it's a percent. Yeah, yeah, it's a percent. So I mean, a hundred would be the on this scale, a hundred would be the maximum. So just first, you know, countries measured by Gini, and uh, you know, I've been to some of these countries: Nicaragua, um, El Salvador, Colombia, uh, Mexico, Nicaragua. Nicar Nicar and they're not Panama. They're not bad countries. I mean, they were they were lovely to visit. Um, so it doesn't, you know, having being very low on inequality or being very high inequality doesn't mean that the country is a no go place. But I mean, they do cluster. All these countries have structural issues in them. They have so there's social unrest. They've gone through periods of flux, many causes. But you know, that's this is the the low the high inequality club. And if you look at the growth in inequality of the United States, um, measured by the Gini, since, you know, this is, I guess, I can't even read, that's 1950. 
The first measurement is, yeah, around the 19, 1970, 19, late 1960s. And so if we just fit a linear linear model to that, which, you know, might be dangerous, but it's the simplest thing we can do. And then you just extrapolate. Let's play the, let's play fantasy land and just look what would happen if we extrapolated to 1950 and we just let inequality run, right? We didn't change any policy and just let it run. The United States by 2050 would hit sort of the, you know, the levels of inequality of some of these countries. And, you know, that, that's just, I mean, it's, uh, it, first of all, it's extrapolation. Lots of things could change. Policies could change. Uh, maybe there's, you know, economists might even have already figured this out, that that's just not really possible for, for an economy like the United States. They just can't, it just can't go up that high. Something would have to change. Um, but, you know, this kind of shows you the, the, the trajectory that we're on and the stakes at play is that if you just let things run and they can run out of control, we're getting up to, you know, by today's standards, some of the highest, most unequal places. The last five or so points, there's actually a pretty significant dip. Yeah, so that, I mean, you know, when I made this, I saw that, and, you know, I wanted to say, oh, they're outliers, which they actually are, but I thought that was, like, cheating and unfair, so I left them in. But this is the financial crisis, and, uh, and this is the financial crisis. This trend has continued as, as it's been measured more, more finely. It's, it's ticked back up, so, I mean... It's a, it's a, that's a good point, but that, I don't think anybody out there is saying this is what's happening. Yeah. yeah. When I've read into this, this was. That wasn't premeditated policy. No, no, this was financial crisis stuff, and uh, and you know it's not it's it's everything that made this is still there. So and it's and it's, it's most people suggest it's just getting worse. Those those the factors that led to this, whether you think it's good or not, the factors that led to this are still persisting. So it's, you know, there's no reason to think it's not going to continue, at least in the short term. Yeah. So, uh, how about the comments? Uh, so Canada seems to have less measurements for the Gini coefficient or the thing. But even though they have, the, they have fewer measurements, their data points seem to be clustered more closely than the US does. So does that reflect on the economic policies that Canada has versus what the U.S. has, or is it is it unfair to sort of treat a Gini coefficient as a as a sort of reflection on what the economic policies would would be for that country? No, I think or you can. Economic status. Yeah, yeah, I think you can definitely do that with the Gini. You can definitely say uh, you could you can go into those things and say, oh look, the Gini dropped because of some you know you could look at some covariance with uh, with policy and see that's definitely fair game um, regarding the density of points they're just they I think that's going to be a factor factor that it's going to be a fact that, that these are different data sets you know it's just it might be census census data or um, I'm not sure where it's compiled I think these are actually measurements that I got from you know index and and there are a number of different methods that were used to calculate another number of different data sets that tried to um, that tried to interpret the Gini coefficient using different data so it's, so it's actually an average of a number of data sets um, average into into different numbers and yeah so those are just you know different publications different authors would do they try to compute a Gini coefficient for a country at a different year than another country and there's way more data points for the United States because people care a lot more about the US than Canada we're you know tiny <laughs> tiny country we're like a fly on the back of a elephant
So, <laughs> I'm Canadian. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's uh, I think that's and then your your second question was was really about whether you can use it as a way to understand policy decisions. Because because at a very simple one to one correspondence, it seems like Canada's doing something right. Because you know the the inequality there is inequality in Canada as well, but it seems to be clustered around the the twenty to forty percent region versus U.S. Seems like oh if if you if you're born at the right time or earning at the right year, then you you have more money versus in I don't know, 2000, you're earning probably less money because it's a very unequal society. It, so it's, is, is there something for the US or possibly countries with like very fluctuating Gini coefficients to, to learn from Canada? Oh, yeah, I think definitely. I, I mean, I don't think Canada is even, even the country to learn from. It would be, there's other countries that are better that, than Canada on Gini. Um, Netherlands. Netherlands, Denmark, you know, uh, Sweden. I, they, they, those are those are good genie countries. Like they have low low inequality. Canada is doing pretty good, and it's, it is a policy. I mean, Canada does have compare. So the United States is also one of the most. It is, I think, the most unequal country in the developed world. So the 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 big developed economies, it's it's highly unequal by on in that cluster. Um, and I mean, that's a big discussion. I think why, right? I mean, everybody's going to have different opinions. That's a whole other talk, but. Um, you know, it's a there's, it's a it's a more free market um, country. There's there's uh, less regulation could be could be a factor. Uh, there's you know maybe I'm not sh- I'm not sure if this is true, but the inheritance taxes matter. So if you have more inheritance taxes, then it's you know harder to pass on. If you have more inheritance taxes, it's harder to pass on your wealth to the next generation. And then that's going to lower inequality because you know the persistence of wealth in your family lineage. Um, is going to be harder to so there's a lot of factors that are going to play um, exactly what those are in the United States I think it's a big I think it's a big question it's worth thinking about though so this one's this one I think this slide is kind of and it, it's it, there's there's food for thought here so the this is the a- annual uh, annual growth in um, I guess it's going to be ah I want to say it's going to be income I think. I should have wrote that down. Yeah, income. So um, as you go up in the income percentile, so these are the these are the people the lowest the lowest incomes, and uh, you know these are the people here with their they have the highest incomes, right? So we want to look at since 1980 how much growth in there how much growth in income has that percentile seen? We already kind of looked at data similar to this before. But you know, you see, it's pretty, it's pretty slow going, and even for the for the lowest guys, like after tax, they're they're doing okay, which I guess is probably the the really the relevant one. But post tax, they're they're seeing a very modest increase in their wealth, and it's gradual. As soon as you get up to the you know the ninety fifth percentile, it's it's you know they're seeing a they're they're seeing a big increase in their in their income. Um, annual average growth of their income. Pre-tax, post-tax, doesn't matter. No, pre-tax, post-tax, doesn't matter. They're getting tax breaks, you know, like, doesn't matter. But, I mean, the the reason you got this pre-tax and post-tax in here is just because tax is one of those uh, tools that governments can use to sort of equalize these things. So they can... it's, it's affecting only the poorer people. Yeah, I mean, because that's really, it's pretty hard, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty cold government that 
just will make their tax policy without the poor in mind, right? That's that's really the point in but taxes. But I mean, the growth, so when you say post-tax, that blue line, that's, uh, that's growth in the post-tax income. Yeah, annual in their post-tax. So yeah. that's better, actually. Yeah, it's better. Yeah, so it's... So, yeah. Hmm. Um, but, I mean, the, I think one thing I want to point out that's just kind of interesting is that if you look at... Um, Inequality scales, in other words. So if you look at, the, if you're in the 50th income percent line, you're looking at your neighbor in the 55th, right? Well, their growth has been comparable to your growth, right? And so you, get, you might be irritated because you're kind of like, you're looking around you all over here and you're like, I'm not growing as fast as my neighbors, but I, I, and I would like to. Now, if you're up here, if you're, if you're a millionaire, you're somewhere around here, you're looking at your millionaire, your 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 pe people next door who are just you know maybe they got two million. All of a sudden they've got four million. So it's just expanding, right? So up at the top. So there's inequality even at the top. And if you, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Nobody talks about that. You know, I've never heard anybody talk about that fact. But if you really think about it, that's going to be driving some interesting stuff up there. We don't really talk to, you know, you don't talk to millionaires that often. But I think it'll be driving their psychology. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it'll be driving their psychology. It'll be, I mean, they're, they're the hungriest of the hungry. So if they're experiencing inequality in their, uh, in their bracket, they're going to want to, you know, do something about that. I, I, I don't know if people study that, but this is actually, you know, if you just looked in here, this is where there's the most inequality by a certain, you know, weird way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> but this kind of comes back to the derivative stuff that I was talking about. I think in natural systems, uh, the way that the dynamics works, okay, not all natural systems, but in some, and definitely this one, is that incentives are set up all relative. We have got a dopamine circuit that only cares about differences between expectation and reality. That's where happiness comes from. Um, and in those systems, I feel like uh, what you expect, what you take for granted is always changing. So. Um, at some point it could be, oh, I just want to make enough of a living for myself. And then you're only caring about the absolute income. And then when that's assured, you start thinking about, no, I want to now grow because my neighbors are growing. Yeah. And when that's assured, you want to say, no, my growth rate has to increase every year because that's what's happening. You know, so it's just this, you know, so I feel like it's not surprising to see, uh, power laws kind of fall out of those things yeah. where you find derivatives, all derivatives everywhere. Yeah. Uh, all all sorts of derivatives follow, following the same. Uh, so trend. think think about it, you know, like th that, that power law, I think you're right, that power law property is is, is part, part of this effect, but it's sort of like if you're sitting in here where, you know, a lot of people are, you go into a party and, you know, you're about to socialize with people and you're like, oh, you know, that guy has more than I do, but he's got, what, I make 60 grand and that guy makes 90 grand. He's no better than me. Like, who, he, like, he can't tell me what to do. You're over here and you go to, you go to a party, right? And who you hang out, you don't hang out with schlubs in the 50s, right? You hang out with other people here, right? And now all of a sudden you're at a party where, you, you know, you got 10 million and then you talk to a guy, he's got 90 million, right? It's like, ah. Oh. And he's already putting his consciousness on the computer. Yeah, yeah. He, he, his, his, he's ensuring his, like, you know, immortality by investing in some, you know, Peter Thiel fund for billionaires to cryogenically. It's even worse if you're a billionaire, those poor guys. I mean, like, you walk, you walk into a room 
and you're hanging, you only hang out with billionaires, right? Or maybe hundred billionaires. And it's just, there's just like a billionaire in that club is not even that much because there's 10 billionaires. There's, there's 20 billionaires, there's 30 billionaires. And the difference between that is just enormous, right? So, and I mean, those are the people who really equate value with worth, right? That's why they've gone through this whole process because they think that, you know, money is what defines who you are. I, I mean, I just, I want to shed a tear for those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I was reading this book about uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos uh, ex-CEO. And apparently one of her great strengths was she could identify the people who were just like that, who were really high net worth, but they were feeling like, you know, that hey, that is... They know, were crushed under the weight. of founder and just, you know, going through the roof. So, I mean, like... George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, I mean, like, these are, like, you know, people whose network was very good to begin with. But they invested, like, crazy in her, you know, ideas, which were, like, wacky as heck. Yeah, I don't know if... I don't, to be like Bill Gates. I don't know if people know that story. You could, you could share oh, it. I don't know if everybody knows yeah, it. I would have thought everybody... Okay. I, I know. Oh, okay. Heranos, uh, it's, like, just a crazy story. This 19-year-old uh, Stanford dropout, she started a... Uh, you know, medical uh, blood testing company, and uh, which has just completely crashed and like you know, it's like a complete fraud. But she managed to get these like people who you know were like like George Schultz is credited with, uh, you know, winning the Cold War for the U.S. You know, Henry Kissinger is considered this great sage. You know, so these are extremely cautious, very you know, I mean. Uh, I mean, really, she got big money people. from Rupert Murdoch as well. Right, right, right. Very savvy people, and they all bought into her completely insane ideas. And it was all completely wrong. The best way I can, uh, like, I can't describe it. There's like a YouTube video. Oh. The, the, the initial ideas weren't insane, but when it turned out that it didn't really work, they, they just turned out like massive, massive fraud. And, I mean, they were ambitious, but I don't think they were completely crazy. I don't know. Was it John Kiraku? Or no, whatever it is. Yeah, 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 the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, yeah, he has several talks on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, I recommend going It really was crazy the fact when, when their ideas started not to pan out, they just turned to complete and utter fraud in order to pretend like like things are still working. Well, yeah. I mean, his, his contention is, and like, I mean, kind of the biological sciences were always very sure. needed of the idea that yeah. these ideas would work at all, so they were apparently crazy to begin with. <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah, but yeah, yeah but yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, okay. in on those uh, insecure people. And so I'm going to skip this one, because uh, we've, you know, I'll just go to... One last uh, idea, and I think this is this is pretty pretty powerful one. It's pretty it's pretty interesting, uh, and I don't know what it you know I don't know if it says good things about the future, but um, it kind of we can ask the question of like what what's one of the the generating factors in inequality, and some people have suggested, and this is providing evidence for this, is <clears throat> that. What's driving inequality, or one of the driving things for inequality, is that there's been a lot of technological progress in the 20th century. And technological progress is, is something that is bound to lead to inequality. Um, as, as technological progress goes on and takes over human, the, the jobs that humans traditionally do, that means that you can either pay humans less, so you can pay the people who don't have the education or can't build the machines, or don't have some critical component managing the machines or something like that, just, you know, most of the population, you don't have to pay them as much because 
the thing that they can do can actually be done by a machine, can just be replaced by a machine. Um, or it just, it means that you don't need to hire as many people. People just aren't, aren't making money because they're not, they're not needed. The machines can do what humans can do. And this is kind of arguing that that is, in fact, what may be, uh, may be happening currently, what's, what's going on. So this black line here is uh, the steady march of GDP. So that's just, you know, it's going up, blip, blip here, I guess, you know, financial crisis. Um, and I guess this is U.S., U.S. GDP. And uh, so then you look at the corporate investment in equipment and software. Okay, so that has also been steadily uh, increasing. And, and then you look at the, um, the profits after tax have been soaring. So this is corporate profits. And employment has been going down. As a proportion of the population, employment rates have been going down. So this is sort of suggesting as, as in investment by firms in uh, equipment and software has been sort of keeping pace with uh, the, the growth that's happening in economies, but labor's share of the, 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 the growth is dropping. So there's less employment. So firms need less people because they're investing in, in software and equipment. And I think this is just interesting because this is a trend that's bound to, to continue. I mean, I, can, I think we can see it all around us that, that technology is just um, it's becoming more of a factor in the economy and more industries are, are, are going to be automated for sure. And I think this is a huge thing that um, this is why inequality, I think you have to think about it. And if inequality, if, if it really is um, central to a lot of problems that are occurring, like to go back to the first slide, if that, if inequality is related to that and this, and this is true, which, I mean, I think there's a good case that can be made that, that technological progress and automation is linked to that, then we're in real trouble because there, there doesn't, there's just no way to stop technological progress. And if that's linked to inequality, the only thing to do would be policy, I think, or, um, or some brand new kind of ideas that come from, from some other direction. But there's another idea too. I mean, there's yeah. also the fact that it's not even that people will be phased out entirely, it's that some people just want to be able to learn the technology to get the job, so they'll find somebody that already knows it or that could catch on quickly. Because it's a matter of like, where are the people in society that know the technology versus people that don't? And how, and, or whether they can learn it or not. So there's even that yeah. component too. Because in my profession, we use a lot of technology in uh, the teaching profession, but a lot of adults that I work with, they have the hardest time learning that, but they have other skills that supersede their technology parts, but they know going out there now, they're going to be faced with that problem of not knowing the technology and having the hardest time learning it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's just part of the, part of the problem that they're, I, it seems, it seems to me that, that if we don't think about it at all, if, if there's no, um, and people, it is a big political but issue. It's just it's one generation. I see like people who are like older in this generation, uh, the world has changed a lot, technologically speaking, from back when they were students and learning skills. So if, you, if they don't have a job now, it might be hard for them to be integrated in a world where they would have to learn a lot of like, new skills. But the pace at which technology changes is itself increasing. It's kind of exponential now. 
So within our lifetime or in the next lifetime, there would be so many changes required in one lifetime that maybe if this continues and there are no policies and you have to constantly keep yourself employed, you have to kind of reinvent your skills every decade, maybe every year, eventually, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That puts a lot of burden on, on the workforce. Yeah. Um, so if just to stay productive, just to stay a part of the workforce, you need to yeah. constantly, I mean, constantly be reinventing your skills or adapting your skills to the economy. But there are other forces as well. For example, technology. When I first started learning how to use the computer in school, there used to be like a manual and there used to be classes. These days, no one looks at an operator's manual before they use Instagram. So the technology itself is being designed such that the learning curve is as shallow as possible so right. um, there's a lot of stuff at play there is a lot yeah there's definitely a lot of stuff at play i think these are just things to keep in mind but that's that's it that's that's the that's the Molotov. thanks for um having me Can we see what the next to last slide was? <laughs> oh sure, yeah. No, I was just I thought I was getting a bit late. And it's 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 an interesting slide. Can I make this big? Make uh, go to view. Uh, full screen. No. Full. Love control. You should have said control. Oh the uh, so this, this is sort of like public opinion about inequality and it, it's broken down by geographical regions. So this is, uh, you know, East Asia Pacific, Europe and Central Asia, Latin America, Middle East, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and then just overall. So it's a rating scale between one and 10 to the question, oh, uh, income should be more equal. So you ask, yes, you go out there and you do a survey-based method saying income should be more equal, and you ask them that question. And then what you find is a bimodal pattern. So, so ten means that they really means, want to say yes, income should be more. Yeah, equal. and one is like no, definitely don't do that. That's bad. That's, don't don't do that. And so all across the world, you find that that the the peak, the most frequent responses are one and ten. Okay. Um, and that's, that's kind of, it's polarizing, right? So it's a, it's a polarizing issue. There's strong, it kind of implies that there's strong opinions on either polarity. Um, but if you break it down actually, and you break, you know, you keep track of those people you asked, you keep track of their income level. What you find is that at every part of the world, there's an increasing, you know, your opinion on, uh, on inequality is an increasing function of your status. South Asians don't care much. You're like, South Asia is like meh. <laughs> South Asia. Peaks are at... Oh, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it's a good, it's a good point, yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not... Yeah, yeah they're in the middle. They're more clustered into the middle. They're more clustered into the middle overall. But it has its highest slope on the bottom graph. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're yeah, that's true. So they're strongly... Um, this is just how predictive is your income bracket of your opinion on that. So it's kind of like I said, people like a rainstorm as long as they're inside. So if you're if you're up at the top, then 
you know, you're okay with inequality if you're at the bottom. Yeah, but I actually also found this really, I didn't look into the details of this study, but little. Yeah, okay, so that is one very interesting thing. There's this little uptick, and it's, I, it's kind of sad, actually. It's like <laughs> the poorest people have this kind of like, and also it doesn't even get below 0.5, right? So it's just kind of, which I think is, which is just kind of weird. I, I would have thought, you know, you just if you're really poor, like what the ten, you know, the ten percent, just you're really poor. You, you you know, you'd really just be hating on the inequality, but not true. And also, there's this uptick. Weird. So like, if the if you're really at the bottom of the bottom, you're like, no, no, it should be this way. And, you know, poverty <laughs> inequality has to be this way. Okay, you've accepted it. You've accepted it. It's, yeah, it sounds to be like some sort of. I would at least hypothesize some sort of a systematic data collection issue where just like polling, like, you know, not sending people with clipboards to knock on the doors of you know, suburban houses yeah. or urban apartments, whatever. You're, yeah, yeah. You have to seek out like very poor places to send people there who um, can, you know, speak whatever the local language is. So probably not your like, you know, American PhD yeah. students. We don't know uh, the error of ours. They might be unsafe. Uh, there might be yeah, like, like communication issues. Yeah. There might be in places where speaking out against the establishment is particularly unsafe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they think that the progress in the study is actually like their local reward checking to make sure the populace is you know docile and whatever. I think there was a famous uh, like I mean you know one of those gotcha rain polling at the start of World War Two when the U.S. entered and you know they started polling people in the country about you know, attitudes. And uh, one of the lessons they learned pretty quickly is if you want to poor black people, you want the black people yeah. asking questions otherwise. Yeah, yeah. You'll get answers like polling is tricky they business. They the public questioner asks, you know, wants to hear. So. Yeah, <laughs> polling is tricky business for sure. But um, blockchain, blockchain-based <laughs> solution to to polling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no way that that can have any sort of systematic error, right? Also, also, you have to use the blockchain to do blockchain polling. And yeah. I don't know how many yeah, people in the 10%. People at the bottom, like 90% of the graphs have access. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you can, if you can figure out how to get the you know, blockchain up and running to be able to do that, you can probably get a pretty decent job. Doing something else. Doing something else. <laughs> so. <laughs> if, you're, if you're savvy enough to get blockchain running, I believe they are trying to do that now in Venezuela. Um, oh, yeah. Being yes. run by, you know, fuck his name is, that asshole. Maduro? And, yeah. Uh, like I said, that asshole. And uh, the current, like, like so going to hyperinflation, like, the currency isn't, isn't worth anything, so they're uh, trying to figure out, like, alternative currencies. Um, it's kind of, it's pretty scammy, though. It's like petroleum batch, but it's very opaque. The cryptocurrency that they launched that they say is backed by similar like blockchain like thing is actually backed literally by the value of petroleum. Yeah. So and like, yeah, it uses no like, good sides of blockchain. <laughs> the whole idea of a government issued cryptocurrency is just kind of self contradictory or why are you using the blockchain in the first place then just go back to fiat i just don't get it anyway i think they're kind of there's just this knee-jerk reaction they don't know how to get out of the situation they're trying 
a lot of things. But then it depends on your on your definition when you say of blockchain. Yeah. Blockchain does not necessarily mean like well, it does imply decentralization, but it doesn't. It decentralization in this instance wouldn't be that no that the government doesn't is not privy to what's going on. They can yeah. still be privy to what's going on, making changes like fabricating new entries in that in that ledger or whatever they're basically doing would be a real thing in diaspora. So yeah, it could be like an anti fraud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or so it could like, even be used uh -huh, to uh -huh, exactly. like. So, sort of the assumption is that the only way for the for the government to radically alter the rate of new currency production would be to actually crack whatever the crypto or have uh -huh. the point is once you've figured once you know that they've broken it you like currency just loses its actual yeah. point yeah. um well, even more even more quickly than when they're normalizing yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah you just used to be fighting like fraud or something yeah. Yeah, there's that too. You can like like if you figure out who a particular user is, you actually have less anonymity than you would with, with mm -hmm. cash. Yeah. Um, because you can as soon as you if you figure out what like participants in one single transaction, just because like it's a it's kind of a unique transaction. Oh, now you have this like you figure that out, and now you know everything they've ever done with this currency and know everything they will do. University UUIDs. Yeah, you have like multiple, you know, like, like like multiple different yeah. currencies. Um, and like some way of like anonymously transferring. Like the whole point is that it can't be honest. Like, like if somebody shows up with, with a whole bunch of money, it's like, well, how, how do you know where that yeah. came from? The whole point but is at the same time, where it came the government from. cannot do things anonymously on that network either. It's a public blockchain. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's where a lot of under the hood regulation stuff becomes not very opaque anymore. And that that's where I think it's kind of at odds with the traditional. And that's where the. the Web came from, right? Yeah. And that the British government wanted this like untraceable thing, and they realized that everyone has to have access to it, otherwise you know that everyone coming from it is from the government. Yeah. And so that's why they've been funding Onion and Tor and all this for the last more than 20 years, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Alright. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us today in the Room of Lives. Take care and hope to see you around.